for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. The teaching text for today comes from Hebrews 6, 12 through 20. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to an argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. How many of you feel like you've been awake for like eight hours? And yet I also feel great. Thank you, government, for that extra hour. Well, there are moments from time to time in the life of our country where uh, people get called forward to give testimony to our elected officials. Uh, Sometimes it's because somebody has potentially gotten in trouble, and so they're coming to be interrogated. It feels like that's happened a lot in the last couple of years. Sometimes it happens when there's a political appointee, like a Supreme Court justice uh, or someone who needs to go through a confirmation hearing. Sometimes it happens where uh, someone will need to come and defend funding that's coming from, you know, public dollars. They need to say, hey, here's why this is a, a, a worthy thing for the government to throw public money at. And um, I know that you guys all love watching C-SPAN. It's so riveting. Um, You know, but while important, these hearings can be really intimidating. Even the the physical architecture of these spaces where, you know, you have the elected officials sitting above those being interrogated, it's a total power move. Uh, They're they're sitting, they've got the nameplate and the microphone, and they're just there with their cup of coffee and their paper name tag. It can be a really intimidating environment. And sometimes, depending on the topic at hand... The elected officials who are leading the interrogation can play part in a kind of political theater. And they know that there are cameras in the room and lots of eyes watching, so they think this is going to be an opportunity to score some political points. They use this, you know, departmental meeting as a platform for them to gain some notoriety. And so it can be a really brutal and even demeaning space for that person who's called to give witness and sit uh, under this interrogation. And sometimes it happens that they're asked to give an oath where they swear to God and all the people there that they are going to tell the honest and complete truth. Well, on May 1st, 1969, there's the Senate Committee on Commerce got together and they were discussing whether they should continue to fund the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which was PBS. 
And they were talking about slashing the budget from $20 million to $10 million. And so PBS thought, who is the best person to go before the Senate Committee on Commerce and give witness? Who's going to be the sacrificial lamb? Mr. Rogers. Good old Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers uh, goes and he sits in his chair and the Democratic senator from Rhode Island, John Pastore, is leading the inquiry. And he's not familiar with Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And this is to his detriment. <laughs> and he's prickly from the start. Maybe he didn't have enough coffee that morning or, you know, a little bit of indigestion from the night before. Or maybe he's not a fan of PBS. I'm not sure. But uh, he is, he's not warm to Mr. Rogers coming into the room. And Mr. Rogers, in his own gentle way, shared how every day on television, he tells children that they're unique and they're special and that they're likable. And he talked with Senator Pastore and others on the committee about how he teaches children to process their feelings, that they are valid and that they are manageable. And he, even, he didn't sing it, but he did quote one of the songs that he had recently taught to kids on his broadcast. And the song was called, What Do You Do With the Mad That You Feel? And in the testimony, Mr. Rogers didn't shapeshift. If you watch it, it's on, it's on YouTube. He's utterly himself. You know, I don't think he had a sweater on that day, but he was utterly himself, gentle and serious and respectful. And it wasn't a, a terribly long conversation, but by the end, he'd won over John Pastore, and he says, I think it's wonderful. I just think it's wonderful. And then he goes in kind of like a side snide remark. He goes, well, it looks like you just won the $20 million. <laughs> And I watched this testimony three times this week, and then I watched a lot of Mr. Rogers' videos on YouTube, and I just cried watching this man. I thought, I need to watch this show to help me dealing with the mad that I feel. <laughs> what struck me in Mr. Rogers' testimony was the contrast between his purity and his innocence and the cold and sterile, brutal nature of a Senate conversation in the Senate chambers. And I thought, oh, you better be nice to Mr. Rogers. He doesn't belong in that space. He's too good for it. But he went and he was himself, utterly himself, and being himself and telling his story and advocating for the people that were so important to him, which was children who, who need someone to teach them how to deal with their feelings and, and how to make sense of our very complicated world. Uh, he went and did his thing for the sake of the cause. Now, I share all of this to highlight that in the language of the text sets up a similar courtroom where it's not obviously Mr. Rogers on trial, but God is, in a sense, on trial. There's the legal language of God having made an oath, and it's meant to make us think of God being up there on the stand giving witness and for the church that's being addressed in the book of Hebrews, there's a sense that they're putting God on trial because they've been through trials. Some of them have seen their parents die as martyrs, as, as faithful witnesses to the Lord Jesus. Many of them have been kicked out of trade guilds or, or faced uh, in, in, like increasing measures of social pressure or difficulty. They're going through trials and they're wondering themselves about the trustworthiness of God to his promises in the middle of it. It's courtroom language. Look again at verses 13 and 14. When God made his promise to Abraham, 
Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, God can't put God's own hand on the Bible. Uh, He swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. Now, in studying this passage, numerous church fathers took note of the kind of demeaning for God language that's here, like it's beneath God to go on trial, much more for God to to make an oath. This comes from a church father named John Chrysostom, who's known as the golden-mouthed preacher. He says, do you see that God regards not his own dignity, but more so how he may persuade people, even though God bears with having unworthy things said of himself? His wish is to impart full assurance. One shows the seriousness of an oath by speaking or of swearing by one greater. But since the race of humanity is hard to believe, because it's difficult for us to trust people and to trust God, God condescends to communicate on our level. So then, for our sake, he is, he, so to speak, swears even though it's unworthy of him that he should not be believed. Chrysostom notes that God stoops to convince humanity. He's like, you need me to promise? You need me to make an oath that I'm going to see through my wishes in your life? Okay, I'll do that for you, even though we all know that that is beneath God. God stoops to convince us hardened by sin and embittered by life in the present age, that his promises can be trusted, and so he consents to declaring an oath, despite the fact, as Chrysostom said, it's unworthy of him that he should not be believed. I find this encouraging because it tells me that God understands that the environment in which we've been raised and and the experiences we've picked up in our world affect our ability to rightly perceive and trust God's character and God's promises and even God's existence. A new friend of mine was telling me recently about growing up with a dad who was an alcoholic and physically abusive and how negatively that affected his ability early in life to believe that there could be a God who is a good father. Reminds me of the song by Andy Golohorn. He said, your old man, he spared his love, but not the rod. I can almost see it written in the way you hang your head. He taught you there's no reason to believe in God. Who needs another father when they scare you half to death? Maybe for you, the the thing that makes it difficult to trust in God wasn't a a bad parent or an absent parent. Maybe it was betrayal by a spouse. Maybe it was a, a medical diagnosis that you weren't prepared for and couldn't handle. Maybe it was the death of someone that you loved. Maybe it was unkind or unfair words spoken by people like me who wear microphones on their faces. Or maybe it was judgmental comments by Christians, and you think, if their God is like them, do I want to believe in such a God? Or maybe it's just the accumulation of all the the hurts and the wounds and the disappointments and the frustrations and the betrayals that we just pick up in a life and in a world like ours, the difficulty of just being a person. Or in the words of the songwriter Taylor Goldsmith of the band Dawes, he said, maybe it's just a little bit of everything. 
God understands all of this. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. God invented our world. He's authoring this story. And God understands that it's hard for us to trust him sometimes. And I believe that his posture toward us, who find it so difficult to believe, is one of mercy. And he wants us in the course of our lives to learn to trust him. He understands why it's so difficult for us, and he still invites us to trust him. Abraham is brought up here in the text as kind of the prototype of the one who, like us, had a reason not to believe God's promises. Abraham and Sarah are getting old, and they're barren and childless, and God's promises to them hinge on their ability to biologically reproduce. And Abraham is seen as one who trusts God despite the circumstantial cause for mistrust. God promised them a child, but not just for their own sake. There was particularity to God's promise that this couple, old as they were, would have a child, but there was also a universality to God's promises that through this, their offspring, through this family line, God intended to bless all of the nations of the world. And so to accommodate their, their desire to believe and their difficulty in believing, God gave them an oath and he made a promise. The particularity of the promises made to us, many of us struggle. We wonder, can this be true for me? And as jacked up as our world is, we often wonder about the universality of God's promises. Can it really be the case that there will come a day, as I mentioned earlier in 1 Thessalonians 4, where the trumpet call of God sounds and we meet him who our hearts desire and the dead in Christ will rise. Because it's so difficult for you and for me to believe God made a promise and he swore by that promise by giving an oath. Verse 17. Because God had wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, that's us, he confirmed it with an oath, and he did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. This is good. He's saying because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose clear, his plans are still to bless the whole earth. He wants to make that purpose clear to we who have followed in the community of faith. God gave us two unchanging gifts, his promise and his oath. And then the author of Hebrews uses some really specific imagery to, to give a kind of so that as a result of God's two unchanging promises. He uses this very specific imagery uh, that's, uh, that's, that's meant to drive us toward a particular behavior at the end of verse 18. It says that we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. He's made a promise and he's given an oath for our encouragement, but it uses this language of fleeing to take hold of the hope. Uh, for someone who's familiar with the Old Testament, this would have immediately called to mind an image of a story like out of 1 Kings 1 where Adonijah is afraid that Solomon is going to kill him. So Adonijah runs to the tabernacle and he take, takes hold of the horns of the altar. He's fled from his pursuer, the thing that's putting him at risk, and he holds on to the horns of the altar. 
Adonijah was suing for peace by clinging to the altar, in effect saying, in God's name, show me mercy. And Solomon consented to let him pass in safety. He fled to take hold of the horns of the altar, throwing himself at the mercy of God and at the mercy of man. And the image is meant to convey this image that all of us who have been harassed in life, who've been abused, who've been heirs of good things and yet heirs of the brokenness of the human story, are called in view of the promises and the oath that God has made to bless all the nations of the world, to flee to him and throw ourselves at his mercy. We're instructed and encouraged to go and find a safe refuge by running to the place where God dwells and clinging to his promises. Verse 19 says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf and then reintroduces this theme from the last chapter. Jesus has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The author contends that our hope is not in running to any earthly tabernacle or temple. Instead, our source of of hope and security and refuge comes from Jesus, our high priest, who has entered the heavenly dwelling of God, even to the most holy place on our behalf. The temple and the tabernacle were like a form. They were a shadow. They were the earthly version of, of the reality that was in heaven. And Jesus entered the heavenly abode of God and went to the most holy place to intercede for you and me. Jesus was himself the new and better temple and tabernacle. He was the new and greater high, great high priest for our sins, and he was himself the sacrifice. Jesus, our great high priest, entered the heavenly dwelling of God to to make atonement on our behalf. The the most holy place or the holy of holies in the earthly tabernacle or the temple was the innermost room, the place where God was said to dwell, where he made his name dwell. And one time a year, the high priest would enter offering sacrifices for his own sins and and also on behalf of the people on the day of atonement. The priest would pass through the curtain into the Holy of Holies, the same curtain that ripped from top to bottom when Jesus was crucified and he cried out, it is finished. The priest would enter to the most holy place to make sacrifices. The text tells us that Jesus entered not the earthly tabernacle or temple, but the heavenly abode of God. And the text calls him our forerunner. Jesus has entered ahead of us. This language of forerunner, I mean, he's gone ahead of us, but we're meant to follow being invited into the most holy place. Jesus has led the way for us to follow, drawing near to a place of intimacy and security with God. And it teaches us that our innermost fears and longings and desires, and even that very vulnerable part the center of us that wants to trust him, as vulnerable as that is, can be safely placed at rest in God's innermost sanctuary. Though every man be found a liar, he will be found true. Though every father disappoint, we have in God our heavenly father, one who will never let us down, who is faithful to his promises. 
And he has promised he will not ultimately let us down. And the net benefit of this, says the author of Hebrews, is that it ought to put courage in us. It ought to encourage us. The author says, let this hope be like an anchor in the storm. This hope that God is ultimately trustworthy be for us like an anchor in the storm. Now, does an anchor completely still the waves? Of course it doesn't. The the ship still tosses and turns, but it is tethered to a center. In the middle of the ups and the downs of life, we can know that we are held securely because he promised, because he gave us an oath, and he who promised is faithful. There's more to the Abraham story. When God makes this promise to Abraham and he gives him an oath, like doubling down on the trustworthiness and the cost of these words, God enacts a ceremony with the people of Israel, with with what would become the people of Israel, with Abraham. There's this covenant ceremony that was not uncommon in the ancient Near East where you would lay out the terms of the covenant and usually it was with a greater party, a lord, and a lesser party, a vassal. And there was no kind of covenant making in the ancient world without the shedding of blood. And God in Genesis 15 enacts this kind of ceremony where God reiterates the terms of the covenant, the benefits of the covenant. And God does this thing where he commands Abraham to take these animals. And see, like we've got this split down the middle of the row here. They would cut the animals in half. And one side is here and one side is there. And the idea of the covenant was that after you've identified the people in the covenant, the terms of the covenant, the benefits and the curses of the covenant, that typically the lesser party in the covenant would walk through the animals that have been chopped in half, giving this very foreboding image that if you break the terms of the covenant, this is going to be you. That we're going to make it right over your dead body. But as God makes this covenant with Abraham, he gives him this promise. He doubles down on it by swearing an oath. In Genesis 15, Abraham falls into this deep vision. And he sees a a burning torch pass through the animals. Representing not Abraham walking through, being the lesser of the two parties, but representing the very presence of God walking through these animals that have been slain. Communicating. That God is saying, if and when this covenant is broken, it's going to be over my dead body. That it would be God's blood that would be shed. And even though all we like sheep have gone astray, and even though all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the one who promised that he would pass through the, the, the torture of sacrifice for us is proven faithful. The punishment that was for us was laid on him, and by his wounds we are healed. This gives us a certain objectivity to our hope. He told us how it would go down. He said, if and when you fail to uphold the terms of the covenant, it's going to be over my dead body. And Jesus has accepted the, the consequences of the failed covenant on himself. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. But because he's also been raised from the dead, Jesus, our great high priest, who knows the the consequences and the cost of sin, has entered into the heavenly abode of God, and there he's pulling for us who betrayed him. And that's good news.
all of our fears, all of our sins, all of our doubts, the reticence we have in believing. He took all of that upon himself and presented his scars to his Father as a sacrifice once and for all, communicating to the world, I'm worthy of your trust. He who promised is faithful. And so while the world does make it quite difficult for us to believe and to trust one another, all the more to trust Him because we project our hurts onto Him, the abiding witness of God we have in the person of Jesus Christ is one who offers mercy. He also invites trust. Will you trust Him? Let's pray together. Lord, surely in many eras of the human story, it's felt like, can it get worse than this? And there have, probably been, there have been eras, certainly, where the church has not been a, a credible, integrated witness to who you are. And there have been eras where it's, it's difficult to continue to trust. We wonder how the whole story is going to come to a good ending. But we see how over the course of time you prove yourself faithful. And just Jesus, as you promised that you would bear the punishment for the covenant being broken, and you offered yourself for the life of the world, we trust that just as you said, you'll return to make all things new. That you'll see your, your Father's very good plan to bless all the nations of the world come to its fruition in you. And so, Lord Jesus, we, we long for the day when you will come and you will return to make all things right. There are, there are hurts in our heart that uh, it seems like time will not mend. Yet we feel you inviting us today to trust in you. And even death itself will ultimately be reversed. Lord Jesus, I pray for the person in here who feels like, I don't even know why I'm doing this anymore. And I pray that today you would give them the gift of fresh faith. I pray for the person who's going through a, a particularly challenging season of life, that you give them the gift of fresh hope. And for all of us, Lord, as we come to the table today and we eat the body and the blood of Christ and this bread and wine, I pray that you'll fill us again with your Holy Spirit, giving us the capacity and the nourishment to just carry on in hope and in confidence that you who promised are faithful. Pour out your spirit on us gathered here and on this bread and wine. Make it be so much more than just these ordinary elements, but something supernatural for us. Come, Holy Spirit. So I pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.